Towards the end of the 30s, and under the authority contained in the Trade Agreements Act of 1934, the United States concluded a substantial number of bilateral trade agreements based on the unconditional application of the Most Favored Nation Clause. These agreements allowed for representations between the signatories whenever one or the other considered that a measure being applied had the effect of nullifying or impairing any object of the agreement. Parties, of course, also had the option of terminating the agreement, and this could happen whenever a government found sufficient fault with its operation. The drafters of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT, were negotiating it in 1947 as part of the proposed International Trade Organization, found a good deal of inspiration in the format of the reciprocal trade agreements and transferred it into a multilateral context. Trade dispute settlement, as it is practiced today, was not on the minds of governments at the time. Indeed, in its 1947 published analysis of the GATT, which contains a thorough discussion on most of its contents, the United States Department of State simply said that, as it was impossible to foresee and provide in detail for all possible measures which might affect the commercial relation between nations, Articles 22 and 23 of the GATT provided for consultations and procedures to be followed in cases of nullification or impairment of benefits. That was all. We might recall that Articles 22 and 23 are a deviation from the standard rules on state responsibility based mainly on the illegality of wrongful acts to address similar adverse effects caused not only by illicit measures, but also by those which are illicit. A very few months after the text of GATT was established, the Havana Conference for an International Trade Organization took place, and one of its areas of negotiation was the settlement of likely disputes. Chapter 8 of the Havana Charter established a way in which disputes would be dealt with in the proposed International Trade Organization. Article 92 established the obligation to follow only the procedures set out in the Charter and to avoid any recourse to unilateral economic measures of any kind contrary to its provisions. While this clause was not transferred to GATT, we note that the commitment is now contained in Article 23 of the Dispute Settlement Understanding, the DSU, of the World Trade Organization, the WTO. A procedure for consultations was set out in Article 93, similar to Article 22 of GATT, and members could submit a matter to arbitration upon terms agreed between them, and keeping the organization duly informed of these developments. Whenever a matter arising under Article 93 was not satisfactorily settled, it could be referred to the executive board, which would be composed of 18 members, of which eight 
would be countries of chief economic importance and would reach its decision by majority vote. The board would be responsible for the execution of the policies of the organization and would exercise the powers and perform the duties assigned to it by the conference. Clearly, the board was intended to have wide-ranging attributions. It would have been difficult, given this setup, for political considerations not to have crept into its debates and into its decisions. A member who was dissatisfied with an executive board ruling could request that the matter be referred to the conference, where, again, decisions would be taken by a majority vote. And one can foresee that, inevitably, intense political lobbying might very well occur on such occasions. There was one extreme course that a member could follow, and that was to request that the International Court of Justice provide an advisory opinion which would be binding on the organization. Given this background, it should not come as any surprise that when GATT went into effect upon the failure of the ITO, the concept of diplomatic, technical, and political negotiation was very much present in the procedures utilized at first in the settlement of disputes, to such an extent that for a lengthy period, the GATT Secretariat, almost incredibly, had no legal advisor. Decisions on disputes were taken by the GATT highest body, the contracting parties, through the Council, which were the equivalent of the conference and the executive board of the then defunct ITO. Up to 1952, the parties to a dispute were members of the working group considering the matter at issue and thus participated in the assentment of their own claims. It was only from that date that GATT took a significant step forward by adopting the panel system and excluding from them the parties to the dispute. It took another 10 years for a further significant improvement to be adopted. The panel which issued its findings on the Uruguayan recourse to Article 23 set out one of the most important features of the system that still remains very much in place. That is, the presumption of nullification or impairment of benefits when a GATT violation has been found. This decision was only part, of course, of a permanent evolution of the dispute settlement system of GATT away from the notion of negotiated arrangements and towards a gradual incorporation of procedures and norms of a legal nature. Through successive reforms, which would be too lengthy to spell out at this moment, Articles 22 and 23 of the GATT were fleshed out up to and included the changes made at the Montreal Conference in the Uruguay Round. Yet, governments found, even before the end of this round, that the sheer volume and extent of the commitments and benefits for which they were contracting which were infinitely greater than anything previously agreed within the framework of GATT, called for two essential guarantees. 
One was to move away from the regime of provisional application utilizing GATT, which meant that on short notice, any large contracting party could withdraw and substantially cripple the agreement. And two, that the dispute settlement system had to be significantly reinforced as a bulwark against the non-fulfillment of hard-earned trade concessions. On the one hand, the creation of the World Trade Organization, WTO, provided the answer. And on the other, the dispute settlement understanding, outlawing unilateral action, and thus reverting to the equivalent provision originally appearing in the Havana Charter, doing away with the possibility existing under GATT of a single contracting party blocking the establishment of a panel or the approval of the final report adjudicating a dispute by bringing in automaticity through the rule of reverse consensus and setting up the dispute separate body and the appellate body, and this represented a crucial improvement giving governments the necessary confidence to bring the round to a successful end. For a long time, the panel system had been the backbone of dispute settlement in GATT, and very possibly a number of governments felt that this continued to be the case and that the newly created appellate body would be called upon infrequently. Uh, this initial expectation, if it ever existed, was soon dispelled. It was the WTO members themselves who resorted to appealing almost every panel report from the very beginning. For a strongly member-driven organization like the WTO, which had inherited from GATT a history of deeply entrenched practices and habits, the appellate body was something completely new. To such a degree, indeed, that we can marvel today at the foresight and resolution of those who decided to break with the past by incorporating it into the DSU. As Professor Robert House observed some time back, and I quote him, in creating a system of centralized treaty interpretation through adjudication, the founders of the WTO put themselves in the avant-garde of international law, and proudly so. And I must say, I fully agree with Roberto, Professor Hauser's comment. For the first time in the multilateral trading system, for the first time, there was an organ that, once appointed by governments, would act independently in all matters within its purview and whose rulings would be binding. Precisely because the appellate body was new in every way, there was a need for it to organize quickly and create for itself a genuine image of solidity and responsibility. And the first requirement was for the members to come together successfully as a team, since without this essential condition, it would be difficult to attain the degree of cohesion or reciprocal understanding that the work demanded. The members all had different backgrounds, high officials of governments or international organizations, diplomacy, the law, the judiciary, and parliamentary and academic life. All, 
all areas of activity. The personalities and the cultures were equally diverse. And yet, perhaps, one of the main early achievements of the appellate body was the ease with which backgrounds and personalities blended with an absolute minimum of friction and crystallized in a group of individuals able to show tolerance, patience, and restraint to each other whose personal friendships have survived intact up to today and who are ready to work the hours, the days, and the weeks necessary to respond to their mandate. Because of this positive attitude and the accompanying willingness, the appellate body never felt the need to register dissenting opinions until one case only. An early speculation that differences of opinion among members could eventually be identified by governments and somehow used in dispute settlement proceedings was soon laid to rest. This result was not readily attained. There are many ways to reach consensus. One of them, among others, is simply to have recourse to the vote. Another, and this is the road that was followed, is that of insistent, rigorous, and yet tolerant analysis of opinions and issues pursued irrespective of time constraints, leading in the end to those flashings of revealing light behind which lie previously unperceived solutions. It was extraordinary that time and time again, the most arduous debates with completely opposed views at the beginning would slowly evolve into reciprocal understandings that would then show the way to generally acceptable findings in which no point of principle was lost. Collegiality, as it has been called, has been a very significant factor in providing solidity to appellate body rulings. While the responsibilities of the three-member divisions were never diluted in any way, the consultation with the remaining four members taking place after the hearings were a constant source of support. And it should be realized that those who were not part of the division could not participate properly in the collegiate process without having read, fully digested, and analyzed in detail the massive amount of documentation normally involved in any appeal. In other words, they had to exert the same intellectual effort as the division members to be able to discuss the case on even terms. Sometimes these consultations have been fairly straightforward because coincident conclusions were really reached. And other times, discussions have been lively and protracted while contradictory opinions uh, were sorted out. But in all cases, Collegiality has proven to be a powerful tool for good appellate body results. The DSU gives the appellate body authority to draft its own working procedures, and this was one of the, one of the earliest tasks it undertook. These procedures have stood the test of time, 
amendments have been few and relatively slight. They represented the extreme concern of the drafters of the absolute need to establish trustworthy rules and ensure the impartiality of the appellate body as a further guarantee to the membership of the WTO. There are many who will testify to the incisiveness with which, with which appellate body hearings are conducted. There is no person in question that is not put to the parties, and every reply is subject to further probing interrogation. Indeed, appearances at these hearings have been described as daunting, and this is as it should be. Every legal reasoning and argument is scrutinized at length, and at the end of the day, it can be said that nothing of any significance has escaped thorough analysis. In the course of its first 10 years, the appellate body had to contend with a great number of issues. Let us recall a few. The appellate body lacks remand powers. At the same time, the members of the WTO have up to now refrained from utilizing paragraph 2 of Article 9 of the WTO agreement to interpret any provision of the covered agreements. This may be due to the high voting threshold stipulated for approval. But whatever the reason, when confronted with an unclear provision, the appellate body cannot revert to the membership for guidance, although in truth, the vague or ambiguous text of some existing provisions would more than justify an effort for clarification. These factors constitute a straitjacket within the appellate body is obliged to function. It has no choice but to continue to address each of the issues of law covered in the panel report and legal interpretations developed by the panel. That is required by the DSU. The appellate body has naturally fulfilled this obligation, and while doing so, it has refused to give advisory opinions and it has consistently exercised judicial economy in its work. In these circumstances, it could hardly be charged with being an active exponent of judicial activism. The acceptance of Mickey's Curie briefs has been controversial among WTO members and remains so. It would appear that appellate body restraints and the procedures it has adopted in this matter have contributed a great deal to allaying the fears of a number of members. The appellate body is specifically entrusted by the DSU with the application of WTO law and it hews most closely to this requirement, as it must. But it has never lost sight of the principles of international law that regulate the relations among nations. It has included them in many a reason and has repeatedly quoted the International Court of Justice. In this way, it has struck a careful balance between the overall principles of international law and the extremely detailed and complex WTO provisions, which constitute a universe of their own. 
the appellate body has regularly had recourse to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties when interpreting the text of the covered agreements. As Professor Donald McRae has recently commented, for the first time in international law, Article 21 has been applied in a systematic way. The essential provisions of the Convention is indeed Article 31, rounded up by Articles 32 and 33. Article 31 tells us that a treaty shall be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to its terms in their context and in the light of its object and purpose, taking account that the context comprises the preamble and annexes. That's what the Convention says. Just about every word contained in the WTO agreement was fought over for years. They say what governments meant to say, whatever may think, one may think, of the resulting text. That was what governments wanted. And the appellate body has logically gone into the ordinary meeting of the provisions that have come before it. It has been suggested that it has engaged in textualization, to use the term in vogue. That is, that it has perhaps placed too much emphasis on the ordinary meaning of the words to the detriment of the other factors set out in the Vienna Convention. This is a matter of judgment calling for an overall appraisal of many appellate body reports before any worthwhile conclusion could be reached. A related question that has been asked is whether the appellate body should take more into account the object and purpose of an agreement, or, yet further, consider policy matters in treaty interpretation, especially when a provision is couched in general language. The object and purpose of any treaty is covered by the Vienna Convention and needs to be analyzed whenever required. However, we must not confuse this with the intention of the negotiators that is found in the text of the provision itself. Innumerable negotiators from over a hundred countries with conflicting interests and diverse backgrounds and purposes finalized the Uruguay Round Agreements. Surely, all of them had different intentions. The only place where any commonly accepted intent is to be found is in the agreed text. What each national parliament accepted was a single uniform text, and any interpretation given before ratification was the sole responsibility of the government officials who gave it. Reverting to object and purpose, it might be useful to recall that the WTO preamble is not always a source of clear guidance. For example, is the expansion of the trade in goods compatible with the preservation of the environment when what is involved is the destructive exploitation of forestry reserves? Are the urgent needs of a country rich in forest products compatible with environmental protection policies which may deprive it of essential foreign exchange for health and educational programs to raise living standards? How to determine 
the share of developing countries in the growth of international trade to ensure it is commensurate with their economic development needs. Do protectionist policies contribute to full employment in some countries to the detriment of others? These questions have not yet come up in dispute settlements, like the reference to the environment did, but it is not sure they will forever lie in abeyance. There is no established hierarchy among objects and purposes of the WTO, and therefore no simple way to determine priorities where they are concerned. And we must also remember that on subjects like the environment, there is a stark contrast between existing soft law intergovernmental agreements and the WTO's hard law provisions. And that is, in labor and employment matters, the LO for long built up its own detailed set of agreements before the question was ever raised at the WTO. Further, if one goes into the covered agreements, one finds that each has its own purposes and objectives, variously qualified. Thus, the agreement on the interpretation of GATT Article 24 reaffirms a series of concepts. The agreement on agriculture notes. The agreement on trade-related investment measures takes into account. And part four of the GATT has its own principles and objectives which are exhaustively set out. In case of conflict, what relative weight should be given to an objective, purpose or principle appearing in the WTO agreement preamble and to one contained in one of the covered agreements. As we know, the Uruguay Round negotiations were carried out in many fora with different specialists involved, and there was no concerted action at the end of the round to pull together multiple texts into a coherent whole through a legal drafting committee. It's no surprise, therefore, that we should find such substantial differences among objectives, principles, and purposes, or even find none at all, as, for example, in the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. Mm -hmm. Of course, these considerations are not immediately relevant, but they do point to possible future problems in the adjudication of disputes. A question that is sometimes asked is whether the appellate body should be sensitive to political considerations. Before going further, we should recall that political reasons very much have a place in WTO dispute settlement. The DSU and any future amendment thereof are the result of negotiations among governments who will bring in political questions as they see fit. At the Dispute Settlement Board in the WTO, members express themselves freely and their statements will often have some degree of political content or background. That is inevitable. Before lodging a request for Article 22 consultations, any member will most likely evaluate its likely political repercussion. In the course of consultations, this issue will be very much in mind. If there are a request for a panel 
Again, this only takes place after both political and trade matters have been put on the scales. The parties are free to reach an agreement between themselves at any time during the course of a dispute, and this will normally reflect a political agreement. The appeal of a panel ruling may well have political connotations, and yet further, when discussing compensation under Article 22 of the DSU, parties will probably not limit themselves to trade issues. Parties to a dispute may ask the Director-General to arbitrate the matter, and this is also a political decision to a substantial degree. It would thus seem that members have kept for themselves a very substantial margin to act in the light of whatever political consideration they feel will best answer to their interests. This is part and parcel of the WTO dispute settlement system. Well, what about the appellate body, or indeed, panels? There can be only one conclusion. The appellate body exists to apply WTO law impartially, as it has been established by its members. It is the guardian of WTO legality, and there is no space to take account of governmental reactions or wishes, whatever they may be. This is not to ignore the fact that if repeated, important and flagrant violation of WTO commitments were to give rise to disputes, they could conceivably create enormous political tensions, but that would be a matter for the membership to solve in terms of its own political determinations. And what has all this led to in the first 10 years? In its recent report to the Director General of WTO, a consultative board uh, chaired by Peter Sutherland pointed out that there had been over 300 formal consultations, 81 approved panel reports, and of which 56 had been appealed and that these 81 reports represented some 27,000 pages of extraordinarily rich jurisprudence. Uh, since then, uh, these figures have increased. They're probably well over 30,000. Increasingly, members participating in disputes quote abundantly from panel and appellate body reports and thus recognize the existence of massive jurisprudence that is constantly providing new predictability and stability to the system. Of course, a substantial number of the covered agreements have not yet been the object of disputes, and it is likely we will need to wait a good deal of time before they also provide the same sort of material for members and experts on WTO law. Appellate body reports are under constant scrutiny from governments, public opinion, the media, and the academic world. And this is all to the good. And inevitably, there is criticism from many sources and for different reasons. Some of it is not well-founded. Other, how much, should be true, since humans have yet to attain perfection in whatever field of endeavor. Be that as it may, it, what counts 
is that there is overall recognition and satisfaction over repetitive body performance over time. And each and every member of the WTO knows that the interests are safeguarded against violations of treaty commitments, whoever may incur them. The much-delayed review of the DOCU will hopefully take place in the not-too-distant future. The DSU involves a potential surrender of sovereignty, and it is proper that members should feel in control of its contents. Amendments require consensus, and therefore change will have to be the result of a process of generally agreed accommodation. Certain desirable improvements in the system stand out in the light of experience acquired over 10 or 11 years. Perhaps the most important is to ensure even greater and earlier compliance of rulings. But too much tinkering might not be desirable. This is a decision that governments must take. Of course, if members were to seize the opportunity provided by DSU review to provide clarification and interpretation of some of the more problematic existing provisions, they would, be providing, they would be providing important guidance to the suit settlement mechanism and simultaneously reaffirming their own political role within the WTO. But a further challenge is in the offing for the WTO. Recourse to Article 24 of GATT has led to a tremendous and increasing fragmentation of dispute settlement mechanisms embodied in nearly 300 free trade agreements lacking formal WTO acceptance, while no effort has been made to set up some uniformity among them or to ensure that the guarantees contained in the DSU are reflected faithfully in their provisions. Is this desirable for world trade relations? To what extent does it diminish the importance of the DSU and indeed of the WTO? This is an issue that will not disappear on its own and will need to be faced up to if it really remains the wish of the world community to conduct international trade basically within the most favored nation clause embedded in the WTO. Trade is recognizably an invariable source of prosperity. Time and time again, it has also been the root of conflict and domination. The DOSU is the most advanced achievement on record to settle disputes in trade in peace and under the rule of law. Restraint and a sense of balance on the part of WTO members have been a vital factor in the success of their dispute settlement understanding. As world trade continues to grow through ever-changing patterns, it also becomes more complex and a source of new tensions. It remains crucial for the future of intergovernmental relations that those agreements that inevitably arise should always be settled in a framework of good faith and respect for the law. And we must hope and expect that what the appellate body has accomplished over more than its first 10 years will prove to be the foundation of future success.